This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who wonders if New York City ever forgave Bill de Blasio for eating pizza with a knife and fork. I certainly did, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair, of course, is Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York City. He's also running to be the Democratic nominee for president in 2020 and has recently proposed a robot tax to protect American jobs from automation. We're also going to talk about some of the tech-related policies he's pursued as mayor, including a cap on the number of Uber and Lyft vehicles that can operate in New York. But there's a lot of other topics. Mayor de Blasio, welcome to Recode Decode. Thank you, Karen. Thank you for like, I feel like I've been formally forgiven for the pizza <laughs> thing. That's like a really big moment in my life. I've been waiting for you eat your pizza. someone to Francisco. say it's okay. You can, you can take, yeah, you can eat your pizza any way you want. Anyway, I interviewed just recently Marion Williamson. I've interviewed uh, Amy Klobuchar. I'm, go, I'm working my way through the schedule of, of nominees, which yeah, how much take time me do you have, 2023. Right? <laughs> right. Um, but I'm not a traditional reporter, political reporter. And you know, there's a whole type of that. And so I think they would, same thing I said to Marion Wilson and others, like, the why are you running for president if you're probably not going to win? Like, uh, Senator Klobuchar was lower, uh, Andrew Yang, I interviewed him. I do want to talk about why you're running for president now. Sure. Like, what is your what is your feeling right now? Like, Jay Inslee dropped out, others mm-hmm. have dropped out. What are you going for here, given your you weren't on the debate stage last right. night, and I know you were tweeting about it. So what are you why are you doing it now? What is your feeling about it? I think the the first thing to say is why do you do it at all? Right. But very yeah. simply, if you right. believe you have something to offer. So for me, it's I run the biggest city in the country. Mm-hmm. My whole message is about how to address the needs of working people in a very different way. And I can say, hey, look, we've done this. In New York City, big scale, consistently, we've shown that a progressive vision actually can be put into action. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the other candidates, I really like a lot of these candidates. Mm -hmm. I appreciate them. You all seem to like each other. Yeah, it's it's a pretty good situation. Uh But the question is, do you have a life experience, a preparation to actually put the ideas into action? And Mm -hmm. I can say as a chief executive, it's a whole other ballgame. Campaigning versus governing, legislating versus being an executive. I think I bring something very particular. That's why I ran. Why do you keep going even when the chips are down? Because mm-hmm. first, I've always been an underdog. I, you know, for most of the campaign for mayor of New York City, people have said I had no chance in hell. Mm-hmm. But we're in a different political moment where things happen, unpredictable things happen. Things move quickly because mm-hmm. of social media, et cetera. I literally believe, I've, I said this recently that, you know, in America today, someone goes from absolutely unknown to totally famous in 72 hours. Right, yeah. And, and then back again. And back again, right, right, exactly. But that means, you know, those grassroots donations can move with that kind of speed. Poll numbers can move. 
So I would argue to you, someone like me might never have run for president mm-hmm. 10 years ago, five years ago, but 2016 said to all of us that there are no rules anymore. And if you believe you have something to offer, get out there and try. But at some point, of course, you have to see forward motion. So I continue to believe that putting forward important ideas like talking about automation, talking about a robot tax. Income inequality. Income inequality, which really is the issue I got elected on here in New York and still is an issue this country hasn't come to grips right. with enough. And it's not budging New York or elsewhere. Or across well, I would argue I can, right, we'll talk I can about actually that. talk we'll, about that. And, but, but the point being, you know— I believe I am politically a child of the Great Recession, that I am one of the people elected because America changed profoundly. I don't think we're still coming to grips with that. Mm-hmm. I think there's a whole lot more to figure out about how we create a fair and just economy. And so long as I feel I've got something to contribute to that debate and that there is that chance of an opening up in the electoral situation, mm-hmm. I'm going to stick with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, I'm, I think under But you're not here to do a topic thing like Jay Inslee seemed to be with climate change, which is a laudable thing to do yeah. as far as I'm concerned. I think he did a great job. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's a very debatable thing. Do you make your campaign about one thing or, or a sort of broader issue? My, I mean, my slogan's three words. It's working people first. And that talks, you know, that touches automation, that touches yeah. wages and benefits, that touches many things. But I would say different people have a different sense of mission. Jay Inslee will go down in history as having focused us all more on uh, climate, climate change. change. Right. That's great. So are you surprised like someone like Andrew Yang? You speak, Yang Yang, that has happened to Andrew Yang. He is higher up because of social media, because of his Yang sure. gang, because of all kinds of things. And the mayor of New York is not in that debate, and Andrew Yang is. Yeah. How did you look at that? Well, I think it is it is a statement on the— Worst, Senator Gillibrand or whatever. Gilder. Sure. It's a statement on a changing political dynamic and social dynamic. I, I would say I can make sense of it. He had a, a clever thematic. He organized himself well. He used social media well. And the current rules, unlike any other previous election— mm-hmm. Because debate uh, participation hinges on those grassroots donations, he was really keenly positioned to handle that, as has been Marianne previously and others. Mm -hmm. That's different than who's going to be the best president of the United States or who's going to be the best best nominee or what it really takes to run something like this and manage something like this. So I think there's going to be a bit of a reckoning as we go forward. recognizing the difference between what makes a good short-term campaign versus what do you actually need to right. survive so it. You can then. start with social media, but not, you know, just the way Nancy Pelosi talked about the squad. They've got to, like, get the votes, make the legislation pass. You know, that was an interesting fight because I'm like, both of them are kind of right, like, yeah. in some ways. Like, she's right. You need to ultimately get the votes to do it. And uh, I have a lot of respect for the members of the squad, and I think what's interesting, and might use another parallel, 2016, where Bernie lost but won. Mm-hmm. You know, he lost the election but changed the debate foundationally. Mm-hmm. And I think all of us have to be bifocal when you run for office. When I ran for mayor of New York City, again, vast majority of the election, you would have said, you know, snowball's chance in hell. Mm-hmm. But I did pull the whole discussion towards income inequality right. uh, and towards changing policing and a whole set of things. Mm-hmm. And so you have to, as a candidate, have two missions. If you have, in my view, if you have integrity, if you have values that are animating your work, you want to change the discussion. You want to, you know, energetically pull the discussion. You could see it last night on the stage. You know, folks who believe in universal health care mm-hmm. are they're having that argument, not necessarily just for electoral gain, right? right. It's ideological in the most uh, respectful manner. Those who have a more moderate position, I believe they're speaking from the heart, too. 
So um, I have a sense of mission. I think every candidate should that you change the way people think. Mm -hmm. When I was on the debate stage twice, you know, 20 million mm -hmm. plus people watching, you have a chance to actually right. contribute right. to thinking. But uh, you also are running an electoral campaign. Those two are not mutually exclusive ideas. Mm -hmm. But to the Pelosi point, the running for office is the easy part. Yeah. Actually making fundamental social change and reaching millions of people, that takes a certain solidity and sense of engineering change. Mm -hmm. So God bless the people who push the spectrum, change our discussion. Right. But that's not the whole deal. Right. Absolutely. So were you surprised, speaking of social media, you got killed on social media when you <laughs> when you ran. You, and the, the, well, obviously tabloids always have a field yeah. day with people. And you're one of their favorites. But were you surprised by that? No. Uh, a lot of folks that I consulted with as I considered running said, you know, hey, you have a condition that no one else has. You have the New York City media, which is vast, mm -hmm. which is tough, which is often cynical. Mm -hmm. And that's going to affect the overall situation. And I think it has. But uh, the irony is this sort of there's this chicken and egg reality of the very same, very, very tough dynamics that led to that are what credential me, mm -hmm. right? Because that's an everyday yeah, occurrence. Yeah, you get through the gauntlet. Right, it's like that's a walk in the park. And uh, one one journalist said to me, even they thought, hey, there's something about having walked through that that probably gives you armor. Right. Which, if you're going to be president, you better damn well have armor, uh -huh. right? So, you know, it's it's sort of like, no, does it surprise me? No. You didn't hit back very hard on social media. Like the way Trump does, there's a way yeah. to do it. He hits you hard too, obviously. Sure. And, but he hits and, everyone hard, but you got a pretty good— Yeah, with Trump, it was—I mean, it was literally day one. Right. And, and I do think— Did he I have had, a nickname for you? I'm sorry. If I'm well, he has not given me a nickname. I gave him a nickname. I called him Condon because <laughs> I think, you know— <laughs> and, and it really gets to the essence as a New Yorker of what we've watched with this guy. I mean, right. it's unbelievable because <laughs> if you go back to the 80s, the 90s, mm -hmm. there was this just— operatic, you right. know, instances of him getting away with, you know, something absolutely outrageous. Kind and of grifter-in-chief, I guess. Yes, yeah. grifter-in-chief. And so I called him out, and he literally, you might remember the first uh, day of my campaign, he did a video on Air Force One, which actually violates uh, U.S. Yeah, law. whatever. Uh, attacking me back politically. Yeah. But, no, I think w I don't hit back, quote-unquote, because I'm so used to it. Mm -hmm. And I actually don't think so what are you going to tell the media when they're wrong every time and you know oh you're wrong this time you're wrong that time there's there's a limit to that i think if you're going to get criticized you know that is sometimes an example of you're doing something consequential right i right. mean if you if you're not getting criticism that's probably a guarantee you're not having much impact if you're criticized and you can't take it well you shouldn't be running for mayor or president mm -hmm. It's kind of the world we're living in. It's is it amplified. different on social media from your Oh, yeah. How, mean, do you, how do you look at that as a politician? Because obviously President Trump has used it to great effect, the Twitter and, and other social media tools. I think we have to learn uh, well something. Well beyond the Russians. I'm saying just as using it, he uses it rather well. He does, and we have to learn from that. What um, would you learn? Yeah, I mean, I think for, for me, I'm cognizant of the fact that I came up steeped in a certain set of ground rules that now are defunct and it's time for all of us to reset. And um, social media, look, it's like every other human endeavor, right? There, there's wonderful exalted elements and, mm -hmm. and uh, people are organizing mass movements for positive change because of social media. And then there's hate speech and division being sown and, and people's worst instincts being played out. But as a question of anyone who wants to lead perfecting a way of making a message clearer, sharper, briefer, and using those tools, we all have to do that better. And I would argue that Democrats are behind— Except for Ocasio. 
Yeah, although remember, she's not trying to appeal yeah. necessarily to the whole no, audience. No, she's good at it. Right, yeah. she's great at it. God bless her. She gets back well. She does. She does a lot. That's really. good. I think she's a very smart person. I think she's got really clear values, and that helps her be fast and resolute in her response. I think that's great. But I would argue that Democrats, you know, pre-social media, I would have said Democrats had a profound message problem anyway, which is, mm-hmm. you know, we we rarely make things simple and clear, no. and we rarely talk right to people's hearts, even though our values as a party historically have been right there, right, mm-hmm. all about. Working people and fairness and equality. Yeah, the messaging is off. Right, the messaging been off for decades, uh, and we first saw that probably distinctly with Ronald Reagan. Right, mm-hmm. it was like it was shocking to see he Ronald Reagan was doing a variation on what Trump is doing now. It was less, you know, ignoble, mm-hmm. less lurid, but he was using communication in new and smart ways yep. and and exploiting the simplified effect. things in a really sophisticated way. Actually. Yeah, in an emotionally compelling yeah. way. And he saw the gaps on the Democratic side and he just ran right through them, right? And and I was coming of age at that time. It was like a shock to the system then. So I really hope that this election leads us all to say, and 2016 should have been sort of the wake-up call of the ages, right? Stop. It's like have a sharp, clear, compelling message for everyday people, for working people. Like the the argument about elitism and coastalism and all mm-hmm. the things that really plagued us in 2016, that's real. Mm-hmm. That's real. Like we actually – I mean the rural – I spent more time obviously in rural America in recent months. How did we lose rural America? Democrats were the party of rural America. So tell me, from what have you learned so far from running for president? You've been oh spending God. more time in rural America. It's amazing. Than so, Park Slope. Yes. Well, no, probably more time in Park Slope than <laughs> rural America, but still a lot of time in rural America. I've been spending a lot of time in Park Slope. Well, recently. we thank you for that. No problem. Um, I would say there is no education like running for president of the United States. So what's I, the thing you've learned? One, the country is less divided than our yeah, discourse would suggest. A lot, lot of optimism, a lot of activism in the sense of people taking real responsibility. I mean, it's actually quite heart rendering, you know, because meaning moving positive. What I think is that Trump forced everyone to realize it is a participatory dynamic in a very personal way that was missing and declining for decades. So I just these conversations you have with people, they really are in it. They analog. care. You're talking about analog. Well, I'm talking about that I think once we all as Americans lost the kind of tradition of voting and participation, once a lot of the old Mm -hmm. sort of institutional dynamics of our society, unions and houses of worship and whatever else might have been pushing people to participate and conform with a notion of democracy, we've been losing participation for decades. It's coming back with a vengeance and a sense of personal responsibility and sort of personal motivation. That's really inspiring. Uh, I would also say we're a much more, not homogenized country, but we're a country with a lot more in common than we used to. It's shocking. I remember when I was first going around the country, you know, as a college student, uh, distinctly sharper sense of regional differences. Now, everyone's watching the same shows. People travel all the time. People have family everywhere. They go to Mm -hmm. jobs everywhere. So what I came away with already was, hey, first of all, we're not as different as we're being told. We're not as divided as we're being told. There's actually a lot of hope out there on the ground. And uh, this rural point is really sharp to me. So I sat in a living room in uh, Webster County, Iowa, and heard rural folks, farmers, talking about economic insecurity in their lives and the alienation they were feeling, the fear, the sense of you know what was up ahead, and they, right. they felt tremendous check check. anxiety, check to check. And I could have been talking with a bunch of 
uh, folks that lived in the neighborhood in the South Bronx. Mm -hmm. It was literally felt line for line sometimes. And I think that this whole notion of, you know, it's race or it's region. No, it's actually about class in the end. And uh, folks who are struggling, working people who are struggling, are struggling everywhere around this well, country. Let's talk about that because you did make that the sort of the high point of your of your mayoral campaign, the platform of a tale of two cities of income equality. And according to the Manhattan Institute, uh, income inequality hasn't budged, but it's the same thing across the country. A lot of it has to do with people making enormous amounts of money, while others are in a much more you know with gig economy. And we'll talk about that in a sure. little bit, but. Um, Talk about where we are with the income inequality, because I do yeah. think it's an important, it's probably the most important issue. Well, Manhattan is too, with all due respect to them. It's a right-wing, yes. uh, ideologically driven, yes, often often factually free market. inaccurate. They call themselves a free market think tank, but I get it. Yeah, I get and it. they stretch their facts profoundly. I think profoundly. most people agree the income inequality is not, wages have not risen. You know, it's a real, it's been a real problem as people get enormously wealthy. So I want to counter in this way. Okay. One, on the high end, you're absolutely right. You know, if we said, hey, look at the 1950s and 60s, where you had relatively more balance in mm -hmm. our society. You didn't have as much extreme of wealth versus poverty. You had CEOs making, you know, many times less mm -hmm. uh, compared to the average worker in their company. Yeah, if you talk about the high end, the high end, the rich keep getting richer. And there are actually things we need to do about that, like changing our tax policy. But if you talk about working people and folks who haven't done as well, so we now in six years have... Over 200,000 New Yorkers who have gotten out of poverty. Now, that's a lot of people. That's the size of some major American cities. And that is first and foremost because of the $15 minimum wage, which we were the leading edge of here in New York City and in my administration to push the state of New York. And we first did it, and then they did it. And uh, things that are actually taking a lot of money and putting it back in the hands of working people. One of my proudest achievements is pre-K for all our kids yes. for free. That's, that's, that, I would say that's your – I would – of all the things. When I talk to New Yorkers, even the ones who don't like you, that they like. And I appreciate it. And that's a universal right, which is very important, and Democrats should heed that. We did that for everyone. Mm -hmm. And uh, they said it could not be done. There was plenty of folks who said there's no way we could make it good enough, no way we could make it universal, no way we could do it so fast. We did all those mm -hmm. things. And the, the crucial point is for a working person – Per child, that could have been 10000 15000 per year. So that money went right back into the pockets of that family. Multiple kids, you can imagine mm -hmm. how much impact that has. So when you think about that, when you think about things, even simple things like paid sick leave, which we instituted, which means you don't lose a day's pay if you have to go to the doctor, right? You, you know, you would agree the huge percentage of New Yorkers and Americans, even a single day's pay lost is a big deal. All of these things continue to help people move forward economically. Huge affordable housing program, for example, uh, which is reaching hundreds of thousands of people. When you start to add it all up, is it as good as a federal policy to addressing inequality? No, of course not. Mm -hmm. Is it as good as totally reworking our tax code to make the wealthy pay their fair share? No. But it is actually an object lesson, the fact that localities and states can do a well, lot. Well, the, the, the continuing power of states. I mean, what California is doing around cars, yeah. you know, de facto, Gavin Newsom is running the privacy bill of the United States. Amen. Really, pretty much. So when you think of, let me get to, still finish with income equality. How do you look at, say, Yang's push to UBI? It's a big Silicon Valley push for, mm -hmm. from some people in Silicon Valley. How do you look at that idea, which is 
you replace if you if you get people this small amount of cushioning money, they will be more entrepreneurial, and then they don't necessarily pull from other places where money, government would give them. Yeah, money. I don't buy it. I you don't know, buy. Tell it. me why. Well, look, and I want to say I do credit Andrew Yang. He's not the for, only one. He, there's lots. No, of course not. But I'm saying on the stage, he obviously has yes, made it a focal Mr. point UBI, issue. Yes. And, and not, yep. But no, not the UBI point. I'm saying I credit him for talking about automation. Mm-hmm. I think that's been helpful to the national mm-hmm. debate. I didn't love his little contest the other mm-hmm. night because yeah. I think— um, He's going to give, what, a, whatever, 100, 10 people, 10 whatever. People. I find that sort of immediately puts the lie to UBI. Ironically, the, the gambit he put out there, I think— Why is that? Because it is superficial and limited and not Stunting. sustainable. And it's also—I've been blunt about the fact. I, I've talked to lots of technologists, mm-hmm. and you would, I think, agree for some— Technology becomes a quasi-religion mm-hmm. and sort of the answer to all problems. Yes, they're Jesus, in case you're interested. Yeah, there you go. That's uh, good, good, good to know. <laughs> Just so you know. I, I hadn't realized well, that. Well, really, Zeus more. <laughs> more Zeus-like. Pick, pick your God. I think Zeus is a better analogy. Yeah. But then when you say, what about the workers, what about the people? Mm-hmm. Uh, silence uh, descends in the room. And what many of them cling to is UBI as their get-out-of-jail-free sure. card, right? Yes, like that. That's I don't a really know, good way to put I it. I don't have to talk about it anymore because I can just say UBI. Well, Andrew has, I think, from the heart, articulated a vision of it, and it's instantaneously clear it couldn't even come close to being enough. First of all, $1,000 a month, give me a break. Uh, Looking at the cost of living in so much of America, that is not even close to what people need. Second of all, hey, what happens if the government decides to stop sending you a check? What happens if there's a recession? What happens Mm -hmm. if there's a political crisis? You are screwed. And so it, it immediately falls apart. And I'm, I will also argue just the value of work as meaningful human identity, mm-hmm. like the actual, not the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, let's uh, have work uh, replace all other values. Well, what the Trump right? administration is doing, work, unless you work, you can't have benefits if you're an immigrant or stuff like that. There's, or, there's or, linking work to— I'm saying you could argue there's an American problem of sort of— let's work ourselves to death and feel good about it rather than having all the Mm -hmm. rest of life, right? Right. I can argue that one all day long that, yeah, Mm -hmm. there needs to be a balance. But I also want to argue that there's a really noble element to work you care about. And I think a vast, vast percentage of people, they went, they got educated, or they learned a trade, and they actually take pride in their work. And the security of it, that you got something that will have value, it's going to have value today, it's going to have value a decade well, from now. I think now. sometimes, some UBI's thought of as like just a slight break, a cushion, a way for people. You, you, some of the arguments in Silicon Valley is that you can be more entrepreneurial if you're not worried about paying that little bit of rent you're missing or something like that. Yeah. And that people spend ma- money well, just give it to them without telling them how to spend it. Like I understand. You do it stamps or whatever. For some people, sure, that might work. And I also could even agree with the notion UBI could be part of a answer to the challenge of automation and potentially tens of millions of people that work. It is a false idol if you say, oh, this will solve the problem. It's not even close to solving the problem. Mm-hmm. So that's where I would argue uh, if if our American debate on automation was, hey, it's all going to work out and we've got UBI to back us up, let's all go home now. That's ridiculous. That's dangerous. And I think there has to be real critical thinking about UBI. And I'm like from the government and the first to say you don't depend on the government Mm -hmm. to be consistent with a benefit. We're here with Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York City, who's running for president in 2020. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. 
Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. That gets us to the robot tax. You just wrote a pacing robot to put a robot in ta- uh, tax in place. Talk about that um, for displacing workers. And the idea is so many things are going to be displaced by robotics and automation, AI, self-driving. There's all kinds of really big trends about to hit quite significantly, I think, more than people realize. And so this Bill Gates pushed mm-hmm. a robot tax. Others have, have said we're very we're very uh, slow with our robotics innovation. It's happening more in China. But this idea of, of what what do you want to tax? How would you execute that? Like, which robots? Because there could be, there's burger flipping robots in yeah. San Francisco. There's coffee making robots. There's manufacturing robots. There's mm-hmm. surgery robots. There's farming robots. There's mining robots. How do you, how would you, give me some details. Yeah, of your robot and I'm going to key it all to working people. I'm going to mm-hmm. start with this very core notion. Our government today is not based on the needs of the vast majority. This is just a structural reality today. Mm-hmm. And you can see it in uh, our policies towards technology, taxation, uh, trade, where, you know, trade has been all about the interests of big corporations. So if you said, hey, wait a minute, what if the government accounted for the vast majority of people are just trying to get by and actually built policies for them? Well, you'd have to address automation then. You'd have to address the fact that automation could disrupt people's lives and livelihoods Mm -hmm. on a scale we have literally never seen where there is not the uh, it's not it's not people coming from the farms and going to the factories. Mm-hmm. It's like uh, you know when, every so it's time not the farming to manufacturing. That's a that Silicon Valley people do that all the time. And it's ridiculous because you know what that was a vast labor intensive world that went to another vast labor intensive world. Mm-hmm. Right? This ain't that. Mm-hmm. This is like a massive compression of working opportunity. So. Brookings Institution, one of many, says 36 million jobs that could be imperiled by 2030, which is 11 years from now. And high-paying jobs, lawyers, doctors, things like that. A range, including those, Mm -hmm. absolutely. But that's 11 years from now, so this is not anything we've seen before. So the reason the robot tax becomes so powerful, and and I'll talk to you about how I think it would look, is to say, okay— We're not going to do this game anymore where we just theorize and say, oh, hopefully it's all going to work out. Or say, because in the past we didn't see vast reductions in employment that therefore it's not going to happen in the future. We've never been here. Let's just acknowledge that, Mm -hmm. right? And and it's against the post-recession backdrop where people already were struggling. If we were sort of in a world where there's just money for everyone and we said, hey, we can take this risk, that's great. We're not there. We're in the point of extraordinary insecurity. The American dream... For your parents and mine, the American dream was like this article of faith. Mm -hmm. We were all told we were going to inherit it. 
that is not believed in a whole lot of America. Yeah, I've been talking been, to people. The norms have been shattered so many ways. Absolutely. And now it is, there's tremendous insecurity. There's tremendous retirement insecurity. There's tremendous uh, paycheck to paycheck reality for a lot of people now. And a near certainty the next generation will do worse. Mm -hmm. So when you then say, oh, by the way, we might lose a couple of tens of millions of jobs, this is not something to take chances on. So I say there's a certainty in a robot tax. And and there's also, even before you get to it, first, stop the tax breaks that are almost artificially speeding uh, the current automation. In the 2017 tax bill, the focus on accelerated depreciation had the perverse impact VCs of encouraging— VCs have more money. Yeah. Huh? VCs have more money. Yeah, but also of encouraging companies to automate when they may not even need to or they're mm -hmm. not certain they wanted to, but they oh, get such a great— No, I'm saying the tax code is yeah, saying— yeah. Yeah. Let's say it's on the cusp. Now the tax code is saying to you, hey, you can't afford not to automate. Mm -hmm. So our tax code is encouraging the laying off of vast numbers of American workers. We don't have to do it that way. South Korea amended their tax code recognizing the same problem. We should put that in reverse and say, take away the negative. The robot tax then, and you're right, Bill Gates initiated the idea, says, okay, I would personally define it broadly, all the examples mm -hmm. you use, anything that puts people out of work on any scale. I'm not talking about a mom and pop store where, you know, they, they get a new machine and one person loses their job. I feel for the one person, but I'm talking about the larger industries, the franchisees, the places where you're talking hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of folks laid so off. A, a level of... Yeah, set some kind of level. But for that, then the, the, the third part of the equation relates, which is to create a federal agency. And we've come up with this not particularly poetic mm -hmm. federal automation and worker protection agency as a title. You could come up with something more alluring, but the, the notion is actually create a permitting process. Because right now, we can't even identify what automation has done. There's literally no federal government so study. Wait, would you tack the, the robots themselves or the people using the robots or the makers of robots? It's the company, since we have no clue right now when a company automates mm -hmm. what the impact is on humans mm -hmm. and workers. So the company would have to declare the impact upfront and publicly. I, I, you know, I'm company X. I'm going to bring in these machines. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have to lay off a thousand workers. And then there would be a regulatory process that says, well, are you going to reemploy those workers in your company? Some companies will. Some companies will not. I was just in the port of Los Angeles and the big uh, shipping company, Maersk, brought in, you know, automation on a level that was shocking mm -hmm. where a whole giant cart, I saw it my own eyes, a giant container ship mm -hmm. being loaded all, all, up all automated. and almost literally, I think there were five human beings anywhere nearby. Better, huh? better, better. It's dangerous work. It should be done by machines. Well, you could argue that, but I'm saying, so here was, a, here was a place where hundreds of people work and now there's yes, literally yes, you can count right. on one hand. Mm -hmm. The company was challenged because they had to go through some approvals out in L.A. Uh, will you reemploy the workers? And their honest answer was basically no. Mm -hmm. Like maybe some will become mechanics and some will need in other things, but basically there's no way we're going to need as many workers. So you want to, you, you would be the companies that would be taxed. Yes. And so the companies then would either have to prove that they are reemploying, which would be ideal, or if they're not reemploying, they are a per worker assessed a tax. And the way we think of it is, You'd think of the payroll taxes they would have paid on that worker. We say do a lump sum of five years of what you would have paid in payroll tax. Put that up front. That helps fund retraining and reemployment. And, and Democrats beware. Never just talk about training. Training has been a trap for American workers for a long time. Oh, we're going to retrain you. Yeah. Jo a road to nowhere. 
But by doing that, you literally kind of personalize, individualize the situation and say, mm-hmm. we want to account for each worker. We want to make sure that there is a pathway for them. And here's the kicker, and I didn't get this at first, and it's kind of something we all have to grapple with. So I have a job and I pay income taxes, and I pay income taxes and the government takes it and uses it for education or, or mass mm-hmm. transit or whatever. Robots don't pay income taxes, right? So the automation has the immediate impact of the job loss, and right now, no plan, no strategy, no vision. What about to those deal that would say, it. "Look, this is what's going to happen. This is just the way we do a lot of things. The robots will replace in, in say, self-driving is always used, tr- right. trucks and cars." And and probably the best answer I ever got in an interview was from Travis Kalanick, the former CEO of Uber, your best friend, my best friend, sure. um, uh, <laughs> where he said, where he honestly answered, "I said, well, what's the problem with your economics of your business?" And he said, "Oh, the guy in the front seat. If I get rid of him, I have a great business." Um, and now I, I just was talking to the scooter people. We'll get to scooters. Yeah. Um, they don't have drivers. Like that's a great for their business and kind of that's a, that's better for the business where there's no there's nobody between them and the customer. What if people say, well, that, that's the way it's going to go. That's the way it should go. Like a lot of other things. There's no more um, pay phones anymore. And those workers, they just went and they went somewhere else and the market took care of it. Yeah, that was true once. So first mm-hmm. of all, Travis was, just has such a horrible mercenary attitude towards humanity and mm-hmm. I, he's paid the price for that. But Yeah, he's a billionaire. No, he's paid the price in other ways. I know. At least the world has figured out the damage he's He's done. He's a jerk, but he's a billionaire. Uh, You you make a point. (laughs) Although Uh, the stock is down, so he's not quite uh, something. Whatever. The plot thickens. Yeah. But I think uh, here's where we can't afford to be wrong, Kara. That the so anyone who says, "Oh, it'll be like it was before," boy, they have not read much history. (laughs) It will not right now. Every uh, evaluation we have says this will be faster and more seismic and more sizable than anything we've ever seen before. And there's no endpoint. So the problem I have is, hey, you know what? Here's a scary thought. The United States government has more coherent uh, policy approaches to global warming than it does to automation. And I don't think anyone would accuse the United States government today of actually dealing with global warming. But there's literally no strategy for What about for AI? Same, more job loss. Well, I agree with you. How do you tax AI? I think, How but do I, you know where? You know what I mean? Like yeah, that. I think, look, I think there's a kindred point there of trying to create some standards, right? So part of why I think a federal agency really does make sense we, look, could we start with the numbers? We don't even have the numbers. We don't even know how many jobs are threatened. There are certain academic uh, estimates. But how about we create some rules? This is so wild, wild west. And again, God bless the technologists for well, some of the good. Well, rules beforehand. But you're talking about rules. Right, which, because which, the, the tidal wave's coming and it's visible. So right. why wouldn't we want to set so up some let ground me, rules? Let me move that to then what it hadn't been. We hadn't had a privacy bill. There was no national privacy bill. Right. And it was a wild, wild west. And now here we are. Yeah. Would you support a national privacy bill? Sure. Why hasn't there been one? From your because the, this is put aside money. Mm-hmm. Because you made the point about Travis and, and the technology world. This is Google and Facebook and others. Yeah, they've used their money well and their power well, and they've inhibited attempts at regulation. Although, as you see in the European Union, and you know, there's plenty of examples where that wall is coming down and mm-hmm. regulation is starting to tighten up. And I think it's going to happen here, too. But beyond that, it's this great unknown dynamic that uh, technology became, you know, an idol and then a false idol, right? And it... Instead of having a coherent public discussion of how do we want to live, like let's put the people first. Let's put literally put the people first. So what kind of privacy do we need? How do we want to make sure our democracy is functioning? How do we balance free speech while worrying about real issues like white supremacy, hate speech, violence? 
This is what you do in a coherent society. But the problem is some of the technologists, and again, I have a lot of respect for a lot of the people I've met in the technology field, but I think there's, a, there's often this missing element of trying to make it an answer to all things rather than understanding it is human, therefore it can't be an answer to all things. It has to be balanced. It has to be thought through, and there is no absolute, right? It is strange to ever think that something's going to solve all your problems. That's sure. like that's like a so, scary thought. So what would you see in a national privacy bill? What, how do you look at what Facebook and Google have done? How do you, and Amazon, I guess, to us, and we'll get yeah. to Amazon too. Yeah, always yeah. interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Lots uh, but of conversation without Amazon. Go, uh, Facebook and Google in the national, they're, they're the most, they have the most information yeah. on people. How do you look at those companies? I look at them, I get the service that they provide and how it has made life better in many ways. And I also think there's a tremendous double-edged sword unintended consequence. And if you Gosh, said— you said unintended. I think it's quite intended. Well, intended in terms of they wanted to make money and they saw a way to make money. I, I don't think they sat around and said, you know, let's you know, let's let the Russians subvert our elections. You know, yeah, I don't, you don't have to quite go that far without it's irresponsible not to think about things like that. Fair. And I guess this is very much why I'm talking about having a federal agency to deal with automation or robot tax. It's irresponsible not to think about should things be, like that. But so. Should that be a Department of Internet? Should that or a department of and then it could be privacy, it could be robots, it could be I don't know what department by department, but I'll tell you one thing. I would start with, and you said it right, you know, historically when big things happen in our society, we create ground rules, we create some pertinent regulation, mm -hmm. we create some transparency. Remember, I mean, for God's sakes, antitrust law, this is not something that happened in recent years. It's over 100 years old. You know, these oh, fights— changed a little bit, though, because they provide value. They, they think the issue is a consumer harm, and the question is, how do you prove consumer harm? I mean, they're making Del Rahim is trying to pr change the way we think. So we're—actually, on, on both sides, there's, a demo, there's uh, several different people trying to change antitrust in order to meet—because you do get nice Google Maps, or you get— you know, face, uh, Facebook, whatever you get from Facebook, I don't use it that much. <laughs> but you you get benefits. And my feeling is we're cheap dates for these people because yeah. they give away everything, they get everything, and they give us a free map. Thank you. There's benefits, but it's certainly not, the trade is not a good one no. for consumers. But when you think about, like, you know, going from privacy to what would you want in a privacy bill? And then how do you feel about antitrust, Elizabeth Warren's pushing, and Josh Hawley, oddly enough, they're on the same side. I agree with Elizabeth Warren, first of all, but I'll tell you this. First, let's just give it a moment of history. When the railroads came along, mm -hmm. they were giving people a service. Mm -hmm. And yet there was a very clear impulse in this country to recognize all the, the greed, uh, the exploitation, you know, what happened to all sorts of working people along the way, what happened to people's land. I mm -hmm. mean, it's just, we, we've all seen enough movies to know about yeah. that, right? And so more and more regulation and ground rules are put in place. The reason we have antitrust, again, over a century old is because of the oil companies and others that they provided something new. Wow, oil, look, we yeah, can drive in a car. IBM and but, but I'm saying, like, think about each stage. When you used to have to go to town with your horse and buggy and then someone came along with a car that needed gas, you're like, wow, you've made my life better and that's great. But we got all sorts of unintended consequences and we logically, naturally regulated to start dealing with some of the stuff, right? Even, you know, let's look at 50 years ago when people started to realize the sheer depth of environmental damage and went to town, Republicans and Democrats alike, ironically. Mm -hmm. created, you know, EPA created under Richard Nixon, I'm not a fan of, but I want to give him credit for that. Mm -hmm. So we have societally always recognized when we've gone into a new reality that we'd better put some rules on. Mm -hmm. The problem here has been this strange 
overindulgence in the notion of, well, technology is simply good and the intentions are pure and it's liberating us. And it's Look, again, let's be clear. There's a form of propaganda here. We've been sold a bill of goods. It's like everything else human. There's good things in it. There's dangers in it. I don't trust any company. You know, they're still multinational corporations. I don't care if they have ping pong tables and everyone wears blue jeans. They're still multinational corporations. They're all about the bottom line. They're all about their own uh, enrichment. The government's imperfect, but at least it comes with a democratic mandate and some checks and balances and some transparency. We better get the hell in this. So I don't know. Uh, agency Why haven't I, you all been in the hell? Because I think it overwhelmed the the dynamics. I think even let's take take 50 years ago and why was the government the government actually got its hands around environmental damage in many ways right i mean we have much cleaner water today much cleaner sure. air i mean if New you go back alone. Yeah, 1960s, New York Harbor, yeah yeah it was like a nightmare and los angeles you know you could cut through the air with a nice the smog and all the government took charge in part because all the industries involved were actually cognizant that they were being regulated and had to accept a certain level of regulation and government was very muscular and the people mm-hmm. demanded it i think this internet sort of religion uh, or sort of, you know, technology religion pushed away the notion that these things should be regulated very effectively. It was a great smokescreen. I don't even think all of it was intended to have the effect. Some of it might have been. But in the end, what happened? We got told this is sort of something you're not supposed to regulate because you'll you'll crush the little bird. Yeah, you'll take innovation. away its specialness. They're not little birds. Yeah, right. But I'm saying <laughs> it's like it was a birds. game. Right. We're going to take another break now to get on a scooter. We'll be back after this with Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York City. He's also running to be the Democratic nominee for president in 2020. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. One place where you all did push back instantly was Uber and Lyft. Um, all the cities did, for sure, yeah. and New York, for one. Um, right now, you're in a question about scooters, whether they're coming yeah. to Brooklyn, right? No, the, we have Maybe. a state law that says they can be legal, but we need a framework determined by the city and all localities. So we're going to set some ground rules. Where do you think that's—how soon? I love a scooter. You know that. I'm a big scooter. I don't know if you know that, but I'm, I'm a big scooter. I've now learned but, that but, about but, you. But you did push back on Uber initially. You all Very did. much so. Very much so. But that was instant. You knew that. Why did that get the level of things? And then what's going to happen to the future of transit? And, you know, right now you have the congestion tax. Yeah. I think I just paid a congestion tax the other day in a cab I was in of some sort. Surcharge. Surcharge. Yep. There was the great New York Times story about the people on the west side who are mad because Central Park West now is a bike lane. And obviously bike lanes are integral to scooters and bikes and city bikes and yep. electric bikes, which I don't think are in New York City yet, but they're all over San Francisco. No, they're Francisco. here. They're Some here. of them are, but Los Angeles has got a zillion of them. Oh, yeah. They have the little tiny ones, the big ones. Uh, I just was in Paris. I did a piece on scooters in Paris, which, you know, you as typical of these tech companies, they overrun and then they get controlled. But you all were forward with the transit. Why did you act there? That was 
tech coming in and you stop them. We stop them. And my only regret is I very much pushed a bill in 2015 locally that would have put those limits on Uber and Lyft and all right then. And then they very cleverly, you know, used mm-hmm. their vast amount of resources to fight back. And uh, fast forward four years, uh, the city or three years, I should say, the city passed basically the same concept after thousands and thousands of drivers uh, had either lost their work or lost their income levels mm-hmm. or These seen their families drivers. go bankrupt. And and other for-hire vehicle drivers saw that they were sold a bill of goods by Uber and Lyft and their income kept plummeting. And God forbid, you know, we had to deal with the suicides of some of the drivers. I mean, we saw a massive dislocation. This is part of why I speak about the issue of automation mm-hmm. from a very personal experience. And, and what I'm talking about that we experienced here in New York with our drivers is like a small, small tip of the iceberg of what might be happening in this country in the future. But there was vast dislocation and a lot of human pain. The reason we acted so quickly was it was clear as a bell that there was no accounting for the human reality, the reality of our and workers. And they just put these on the street. And they just and there was not even an attempt to negotiate a regulatory schema or be part of one. And Safety. this is the break from the past. I have a critique of corporate America that go, you know, I could go back to any decade and tell you that corporate America did things wrong. But the attempt to ignore and evade all regulation, uh, that really is something we've seen with the tech sector in a way we did not see. it worked. Yeah, until it started causing a huge amount of damage. Mm -hmm. And now it's not working. And now the pendulum's swinging back with the vengeance. Well, that's because the economics don't work, which they never did from the beginning. But I no, I'm saying I think think the people are not responding to economics. I think the people are responding to the privacy issues, the Mm -hmm. the subject, you know, the fact that our elections were undermined. uh, They're seeing the impact on jobs. Right. And so, yeah, I get if you say coldly, hey, Give them credit, you know. No, you know they maybe they got a foul, but they made their billions and right. they pulled it off. I get that, and I like an Uber. Yeah, and I get that, but I'm saying the problem now is all of these consequences for our society. That was not the way to do things. So, so now we better fix it real quick. So you did? Do you drive Uber? Take Uber or Lyft? No, you don't take them at all. Nor will I. Nor will you. Okay, but cars are going to be an important. I was surprised it was 75 percent of the space in a city. In this city, it was car car-related. So how are you going to manage that? Are you, so how do you feel about scooters? Worried. About the mess <laughs> they make on the sidewalk. Well, you know, Safety. we are not. So I was down in Miami for the mm-hmm. first debates in June, and there were scooters all over the place. Mm-hmm. But this was Have you taken downtime. one? You're tall. Yes, yeah, for tall people, scooters are a challenge. Yes, they I'm are like, for short people, too. I just got to be, I'm going to demand as part of scooter regulation that the tall be recognized right, in okay. this new endeavor. Right. But the, so I'm in Miami. And you've been, I assume, in downtown mm-hmm. Miami, and there's not a lot of pedestrian traffic. No, no. So folks were scootering on the sidewalks, and God bless, it was beautiful. Mm-hmm. But in New York, so we are now at 8.6 million people, 67 million, I think it is, tourists a year. You can't walk year. down Fifth Avenue anymore. Yeah, it's crazy. And so, but crazy good on the level of prosperity, right? And and a city that, you know, a few decades ago, people would not invest in and wouldn't live in and were leaving and all. Now suddenly everyone wants to be here. Everyone's staying here. But we're really, really crowded. So government is supposed to be about safety and health first. We've got a safety problem. Too little space, too many people. What do we do? Mm-hmm. And uh, we have a vision zero approach here, which we borrowed from our friends in Sweden and Copenhagen. France and Denmark. Yeah, and, you know, it's working. It's actually driven down, thank God, injuries and, and 
deaths of pedestrians, bicyclists. There's a lot more to do. But while we're implementing a whole new approach to let's rationalize how we get around and actually make it about safety, not about, you know, who can drive the fastest or everything be in favor of the vehicle, right? Now there's a counter problem. You take a bike lane, you load it up with uh, regular bikes, e-bikes, scooters, and different speeds, and some people going the wrong way, and here's a bunch of pedestrians trying to navigate that, and seniors in particular have said to me, it's really strange when you've got only so much time to cross, and then there's like, not just look out for the car, but look out for three other types of transportation, Mm -hmm. all coming at different speeds in different places. We got to make sense of that. So I think there's always a way, but it is not going to be, hey, do what you do, everyone, you know, just make it up as you go along. There's got to be some rules and enforceable rules that focus on safety. So how long do you think before scooters get into New York or get tested? There's been we, te- we have to make a decision within the next year or so based on state law of how we're going to regulate them. Now, how stringent that is or what that looks like, that's going to play out. Do you out. think there'll be a case where there aren't scooters, say, in Manhattan? I think it's hard to imagine they're not, but I would say I'm not going to be surprised if we put some really tough rules on them that discourage people from using them as much as they use them elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And the same with the e-bikes. I mean, one of the things we're trying to figure out is if, you know, they now will be legalized under state law, but how do we limit the physical speed? Like literally put, you know, some mechanism on to allow people only to go so fast. Yeah. 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 Because otherwise, I don't trust folks to pay attention to no. what's happening around them. And what about getting rid of cars? Because really that's at the heart of it. These, If these were these, these last mile things, because yeah. like I was over on the far west side, it's hard to get over to yeah. a subway from the period. Yeah. Hudson, I was near Hudson Yards. It's like a mile and a half walk to Penn Station where you get to somewhere. You have to provide, we'll get into public transit in a minute and then I have just a couple more things to talk about. Um, but these last mile things are critically important. Like yeah. they, they will be critically important. Why not get rid of cars and let them go in? Like, how do you see the congestion getting mo- removing cars from New York City? So remember, first of all, you know, uh, there are a whole lot of different people who make up our society. We are a society that happens to be aging a lot, mm-hmm. and and we're a society with a huge number of folks who have disabilities who have never been given their recognition. Mm-hmm. So you know, a scooter doesn't work for everyone. A no. bike doesn't work for everyone. So let's start with a little bit of fairness and balance on that. I think the goal, I go a little bit differently. I say, first, maximize mass transit, which we have not done as a country and even as a city. We Mm -hmm. finally have congestion pricing. That's going to help our subways and buses. We have our new ferry system, which I think is going to add a lot to the city. Yes, the bike lanes, too, which have been very productive. Let's create more and better options that are not a car. Mm -hmm. And then let's put more ground rules on the cars. Like Mm -hmm. there is going to be, you know, we've lowered the speed limit here lot more enforcement to stop people from speeding. Congestion taxes. Congestion pricing. There's less parking proportionally than there used to be. And so people will make more careful decisions about how and when to use the car. Right. Yeah, I think less car usage is just plain better. But I don't think we should have the illusion that we can live in a society where there's no cars because that works for some people, doesn't work for others. Well, presumably self-driving will solve that problem. That's not for a while, so I'm mm. not going to ask you about that. But only about a quarter. So if you want people to use more public transportation, obviously there's been an enormous amount of debate over the subway system. Sure. Only about a quarter of the 472 subway stations in New York City have elevators, one of the lowest percentages of any major transit system in the world. Why have you not addressed this? Is that you? No, that is the state of New York. But it's still your problem, too. It's it's my people's problem, and therefore it's my problem. But but that's why we got together. I got together with Governor Cuomo and the state legislature. We agreed on a congestion pricing plan and other elements that actually will now fully fund our subways, including the money 
to put in disability access on a much bigger scale. What happened for a long time around here was no one knew who the hell was in charge of mm -hmm. the subways. And it was the state of New York for a long time. But what has happened, and I think it's good and it's healthy, is the last couple of years it's finally became crystal clear and we pushed this hard. There's actually responsibility on the state level. They have the power. Now let's get a plan. We have a plan. I think we're going to be able to make some progress finally. But my job is to make sure that that plan comes to pass. As should, a, should you allow the Ubers and Lyfts of the world who are trying, or I'm using them as a, as sure. a proxy, to take over public transportation the way government has allowed private prisons to be taken over? Well, private prisons are a catastrophe. And I so do not why, see— So why shouldn't they run the sub—would they run a better— No. It has, that has to remain a public Correct. trust. I think there's a really screwed up thing in this country. And, you know, I had a very interesting, uh, I, I meet with many mm -hmm. uh, erudite journalists, including yourself, but yeah, I right. had an Thank interesting uh, encounter with Sean Hannity. Mm -hmm. And it was... Uh, <laughs> and, the whole sentence, but go ahead. Yeah, I, but I thought it was important to speak that to... bag of rage, but go ahead. Your bag of rage, indeed. Yeah. But one, it's important to speak to his audience, okay. who are people sure. I think we should try and win over. They don't and like you, Bill. That, uh, you know what? You'd be surprised. <laughs> okay. Issue by issue, people might, might find more All common right, ground. Okay. But here's the punchline. His whole shtick, and it's basically the Fox shtick, is, and Republican shtick, is, you know, government doesn't work. Right. So, oh, but wait a minute. No, the military works, but the rest of government doesn't work. Well, then when you start, well, firefighting works mm -hmm. and, oh, policing works. Well, then, you know, you turn on the spigot and there's water mm -hmm. that the vast majority of the country actually works really, really well. And then we go on with example after example after example of government actually working. So to the folks sort of press pushing the, the, the platonic ideal of, oh, let Uber and Lyft take over mass transit. No, anything profit-making Beware right away. What are the motivations? Where is the accountability? Where is the transparency? It's actually really good we have things in our society that are not about profit and can be made better for sure, right. uh, but are about the people. And and there's a lot of public sector activity that we got to make it a lot more efficient. But why doesn't? I mean, you just you just put in like uh, this with your iPhone getting into the subways some in right. some stations. Yeah, it just takes forever. Like, government use of technology is really at a low point compared to— I, I would—I I want to be— Some a, of it is. Some I of think it. you're right to say historically slower and less user-friendly for sure. Mm -hmm. I think that's starting to speed up. And when you put in ferry service, and, you know, it's now become a big thing in New York, and it is very customer-friendly, mm -hmm. and it is based on learning the lessons of mistakes of the past. And even the MTA mm -hmm. moving to uh, an easier way for people to pay for their rides— you know, even a big unwieldy agency like that got there. So, but I think what's encouraging is I see folks in government recognizing when customer service, we've kind of sucked for a long time, mm -hmm. and we've kind of resisted some obvious ways to make it better. But that's different from the underlying impulse. Uh, you know, here in New York, our, our public hospitals and clinics used to have huge efficiency problems, budget problems. It's actually been turned around the last few years pretty strikingly. So private companies can't do—you don't want to hand that some public things over to private companies. No, I think there's a place for them when they bring a certain expertise or to play a role or to accept certain contracts. But I'll tell you something. Public sector— Agencies with public sector workers run the right way. If you run these agencies properly in a really modern way that actually dignifies the people who pay the bills, you know, our everyday constituents, you'd be shocked how well if run. If you can. That's a big if. It's not such a – look, you have economies of scale and you have a mandate that does not include a profit motive, which saves a whole lot of money and um, also allows you to make better decisions. Because I think another thing, another big, big conversation in this country is – 
publicly traded companies are making horrendous decisions all the time that yes. are having horrible impacts on people. We should start to ask a bigger question. Why have we made our whole world about publicly traded companies, right? Mm -hmm. Government agencies run right immediately negate. They well, immediately take know, off the table. A, people, a whole uh, big problem there. President Obama talked about that. We're not here to make money necessarily. We're not here to be, you know, our, our goals are not the same as private companies. When they're talk, pushing for private right. companies, doing much. Things. But speaking of that, you can change things. Now, San Francisco, I'm not going to say San Francisco versus New York City. I live in San Francisco and I spend a lot of time here. So I love both places. But it's led on a lot. Taxes on plastic bags, yeah. suing the NRA, banning facial recognition, California privacy bill, California AB 45 around gay workers. It would seem like between you and California, you yeah. could do a lot. Like, yeah. what should you lead on? Well, we do lead on a lot of things that honestly, I think, are more about working people mm -hmm. and uh, trying to uplift people's economic reality. So income inequality. Yeah. I mean, we did pre-K for all. We did paid sick leaves. We did $15 minimum wage. Mm -hmm. We did fair scheduling for fast food workers. And that's just a beginning, mm -hmm. right? I think the tendency in New York today, and I say this as a progressive, proud of what we're doing, but it's age old in New York, really. Mm -hmm. Go back to Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Fiorella LaGuardia. We've always put economics first. It's kind of New York in a nutshell, right? Mm -hmm. Including progressive economics, including, you know, you think about where things like 40-hour week, work week and no child labor and labor unionization and, mm -hmm. you know, a whole host of reforms emanated from New York over the years. And that continues to this day, even in my administration. California has done amazing work on the environment. Uh, well, the and gig climate workers. Change. It would seem the gig workers would be something. The the AB forty five, where gig workers are treated like employees. And I love that. And I think no. Do you and see I, that coming here? Yeah, it has to come here. I <laughs> think I think California did a great thing there. So I'm not. I don't even want to have a competition. I'm like right. everyone go as fast as you can and learn from each other. We right. borrow things from California all the time, and right. there are a lot of great great innovations. What about banning facial recognition? You have not passed that. In this no, city. and I think. How, where do you stand on that? I stand in a place of worried about security and wanting to really work. through through the pieces. So we are the number your, one your terror target. Your police commissioner was, wrote a story in the uh, column in yeah. New York Times saying he thinks it can be good. A yeah. lot of people think it's racially biased. I just had on Andrew Murray, I had just had on, I'm sorry, Barry Friedman from the, the policing mm -hmm. effort at NYU. Real problems. Of course, real yeah. problems. But so the, where do you stand on, your police chief thinks this good, keeping it? I start with, we are the number one terror target in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've actually been able to stop a number of attacks that could have had a devastating impact. We have to not throw out the things we're doing that are working until we figure out the ground rules. So we have – this is a good example of sort of physician heal thyself. We need to come up with clear ground rules. Now, we do have lots of legal checks and balances in how we use any of our technology in policing right here in the city. This is a progressive place. This is a place where these issues have been out in the open and there have been some really powerful um, balances struck. But it's a great question going forward. What else do we have to do? What should we do or not do? We're going to have that debate in the city and come to some— Do you think the city is too surveilled and too— No, not for, not for our reality today. Mm -hmm. I think— Gosh, that, New York City is pretty surveilled. Yeah, but again, it's, it is, I would argue, one of the freest places on the earth. Mm -hmm. It is the most diverse place on earth, I think, by, by many accounts. There is more freedom of speech here, more respect for individuality, more respect for people's backgrounds and faiths and differences mm -hmm. than almost anywhere on the earth. And we fundamentally have changed policing. Uh, policing today in New York, this is one fact. We arrested 150,000 fewer people in 2018 than five years earlier and got safer. So the approach to policing has become 
has become much less uh, aggressive in the sense of heavy arrests, mm -hmm. negative attitude toward community. It's become a positive, respectful attitude toward community more and more. And the reason I say that is, so this is a place that is living out a whole host of progressive ideals in real time, in the real world, against the backdrop of that diversity. And I'm proud of that. Now, if you say, okay, how much surveillance is the right amount? How much is the wrong amount? Let's have that conversation and come to that decision in the next couple of years, but don't ignore the fact that a lot had to be put together to protect all of that. Right. Like that is being protected so every single day. So you would not push a face, uh, surveillance ban in New York City as mayor? No, not per se. I would ha I believe in, and we've started this, a very open public discourse on Body what cameras, it should look like for the future. Body cameras have been an amazing innovation. You could call that surveillance. I call that accountability and transparency. Well, it's interesting. The main maker of body cameras doesn't want facial recognition in the body cameras because that's, you know, that's software added into it. Yeah. Who's responsible for making sure that facial recognition? I just had Andy Jassy, the head of uh, AWS, which owns recognition, which has some problems. The ACLU pointed out that it, it, it looked at pictures of members of Congress in the Congressional Black Caucus and thought they were all criminals. Um, there's all kinds of issues. Yeah. That, you know, body cameras might be good. Um, I just had on uh, Barry talking uh, about this, but body cameras are always facing to the citizens. Why aren't they facing at the police? I mean, they are in the form of cell phones, when yeah. like with Eric Garner and other things like that. Well, let's, uh, you said two different right. things, so real right. quick. I think on the question of facial recognition and potential racial bias. So potential racial bias is part of everything in American life and government, and we have to weed out all of it. I mean, we're doing, we, right this minute, we're doing implicit bias training for all our police officers. And we have to look at the fact that technology can contribute to racial bias, right? Sure. So I don't think we should be afraid of that. But meanwhile, the body cameras, per se, are a tremendous positive example of what used to be not seen being seen. Because remember that what we've yeah. got now is yeah. we get a much better picture of what happened, and then we show it to the public. So there's a sense of, if you and will, buy-in. you feel buy it should always be shown to the public almost immediately. There's first— I know there's debates. No, no. I'm saying first respect that there's a prosecution mm -hmm. dynamic where if there might be a criminal charge or something like that, that has to be worked through. So it's not immediately, immediately, but within weeks, days, depending on the case. Once you say, okay, a body camera brings inherent value, mm -hmm. well, it is providing the officer's perspective because they're the public servant, they're charged with responsibility, so we're seeing what they're seeing. I, I don't quite know how we could perfectly engineer to see all angles when no one's mm -hmm. claiming they know how to do that. But I think it's a massive improvement compared to where we were because it also affects thinking and behavior. Right. If, if I know I'm being taped. I, right. I if you and I, in every part of our life, were being, you know, uh, we're, we're on— uh, That was a Black Mirror episode, I saw. Yeah, that. yeah, right. They're pretty accurate sometimes, but, you know— They're very accurate. But, you know, I think it's a, it's a positive impact on behavior. It creates an actual follow-through. So you're not as of, worried about surveillance, the idea of what the dangers of surveillance— I am—I don't think it's one way. So, so in a funny way, it's a perfect counterpoint to just like some technology got treated like it was just good, just perfect, you know, bow down before it, no, no unintended consequences, and yet there were massive unintended consequences. Surveillance, when it's something like a body camera— mm -hmm creating accountability in police community relations, that's not all bad. Or if it's something that helps us stop an act of terror, of which there have been over two dozen attempts in New York City since 9-11. Of course, the lives saved, that's what we're here to do. But there must be limits, there must be checks and balances. Mm -hmm. It's not one thing or another thing. And I think we are finally having a little bit more mature conversation. I think the whole reexamination 
of the big tech companies, of the question of privacy, what happens to our democracy, who, you know, who's really in charge here and where is it taking us? And then ultimately the automation question, what's going to happen to all those working people? These conversations are finally breaking out. I would argue the automation piece is way behind the other conversations. Right, that's a good point. So I would be remiss if I did not finish. This is the last thing I'm going to bring up with you. This has been a very techie conversation with you. Um, but it, but it all it's all national issues. These are sure. national and local issues. You said bringing H, Amazon HQ2 to New York was mission critical, and yet without the deal incentives, they're still bringing hundreds of jobs to the city, even more. They're Thousands, on pace. Thousands, I'd say. So I was going to say, what did you get wrong? But did you fuck that up? How do you—people criticize you and no, Governor Cuomo. Uh, here's what I'll start with. Okay. The, the situation was ludicrous to begin with in retrospect. Mm-hmm. And what I would say is I would not say, hey, you know, we confronted this vast corporation with a process and we screwed it up to begin with because we won it, obviously. Mm-hmm. On its face, we won it. They were always coming here. Uh, some think that. Others don't. But but let's accept that there was— All right, let's accept that you were in competition with Iowa City. Okay. I think there were some other <laughs> contestants, and having been to Iowa City, I'm going to say it's a lovely town. As but my partner, Professor Galloway, says, he wanted to come to New York. They wanted to come to and New York. And so where the hell why, did he go? Why, would, why does New York have to pay for anyone to come here? So, You're New York. But wait. Why, if they wanted they had to be in New York, where are they? So right. clearly there was something else going on because they're right. gone. Right. But, but they are have more jobs here. than They're on pace to have as many jobs here without giving them the gimmies. Uh, I'm not clear about that. I think they're on pace to have a substantial number of jobs, but not 25,000 to 40,000. I think the mistake, and I'm very comfortable having had finally time to think about and really Mm -hmm. examine, was to say, hey, the competition idea is screwed up to begin with. Oh, yeah. So we're not going to do that. We're happy to negotiate, but we're not doing that. And I think everyone got caught up in the magnitude. Now, here's where we have to be real. If I said to you and you're running a town, you're running a, a, a state, and I said, I've got 25,000 to 40,000 jobs and billions of dollars of tax revenue so you could do what you need to with schools or mass transit and all, no one is going to say, no, I'm not interested. It's just not possible. Why give the world's richest man and the world's company that doesn't pay very many taxes right. anything to come to somewhere? Because the rules of the game are broken. Because I, And I actually think what this dredges up is a need for a federal standard that inhibits companies from demanding subsidy mm-hmm. of any states or localities. Because right now it's this massive race to the bottom all over the country. I'm not going to tell you for a moment that we could ignore it, mm-hmm. right? Because, hey, you know, that that's, that's screwed up, so we're going to let 25,000 jobs go. Yeah. No, that's not the real world. What I think we could have done in retrospect was say, this process creates so many pitfalls that we're going to offer them an alternative process. Mm-hmm. And then we would find out, bluntly, how much they needed to be in New York. But even that doesn't get to the rub here, which is community residents raised valid concerns. I didn't agree with all of them, but they raised some valid concerns. And we were trying to address those valid concerns, and we were pushing Amazon to address those valid concerns, and then, bang, we get a phone call and they're gone. Were you surprised by that? I was. Sh- I wasn't for a second. How are you not surprised because by that? Because he's like that. Because if you know him, he's— uh, I don't enough. know him, and he never <laughs> deigned care. to come among no, us. No, of course that—well, he, he's not going to deign to come among many people anymore right. since he's the world's richest man. But because they're like that. They're like, forget you. Like, I don't need you. I can go in somewhere else. 
Look, uh, well, you said so when that call came in, explain that to what happened. It was a call from one of the senior folks who I had come to know, mm-hmm. and it was like, "Hey, we've reconsidered, and we're not going to be here." And I was like, "Excuse me, <laughs> you know what?" Because I had had conversations yeah. with the same yeah. person a few days earlier. Because you thought there earlier. was still a deal to be had. No, it was a deal had been, been struck. Right, right, right. And we were talking about how to but address. You were getting pressure from AOC and the and the community. And... I, you know, again, pressure in my job. Don't right. don't overestimate pressure. Right. When you run a city of eight six million people, as I say, 8.6 million highly opinionated people. Yeah. You're going to have pressure all the time. No, we had a deal. Polling, not an ins- insignificant issue, consistently showed a clear majority of New Yorkers believe the deal was good. They could count. They wanted a whole lot of jobs. A whole lot of young people wanted tech jobs. A whole lot of folks who were coming out of our city university system wanted that opportunity. Parents wanted it for their kids. Where was it popular? Communities of color and working class people because they saw opportunity for themselves. Mm-hmm. Where was it unpopular? With folks who had done better, God bless them, but they had done better and saw it as problematic. And obviously folks in the immediate area who were concerned about development. That's perfectly fair. But there was not actually a single day where this was a unwanted thing by most people in the city. Mm-hmm. And we had a deal, and they announced it with us. And the changes and improvements we were talking about were absolutely reachable things. There was nothing that was so difficult for them to do. So, like, the whole thing to me, uh, maybe maybe we should have consulted with you, and you could have said, they, these guys, they're, you know, they are not going to respect anyone, and they're going to walk away, and they can't take any pressure. I probably had one stupid assumption, which is if you formed one of the biggest companies in the world, you could handle some pushback and some, you you know, no, I'm saying, I think you generally would say if you built something big, it came with some strife and some disagreement so we can deal with it. But no, what we found with Amazon is no sense. We, I don't think anyone thought they had social conscience. So Mm -hmm. that was not an issue. They didn't, but no sense of even keeping to a deal, no standards, no rules. And I said that they confirmed everyone's worst assumptions about corporate America. Mm-hmm. That's How what do you they think did it came out of that? Not- I, you know what? I, you could say, oh, you know, reputational impact. I just can't get lost in that. Mm-hmm. We, there was a competition. Again, maybe stupidly we accepted the notion of a competition. Mm-hmm. We won the competition. Mm-hmm. And then they walked away. Mm-hmm. Where am I supposed to feel bad about Did winning a competition? Did you think about calling them again and saying, Oh, please. we tried. We tried to say, can we understand what the issue is here? But it was so total, mm-hmm. there was nothing to be talked about. And uh, look, in the end, uh, there's a whole lot of hindsight in public life, right? It's really, it's really nice after the fact to say, oh, we could have done these bunch of things had we had that cognizance. But sometimes you got to go with the basics. No one in their right mind would have ignored the opportunity, right? It would have had a really beneficial impact on the city and on the growth of our tech community, which is kind of replacing Wall Street in some ways in the city and is very valuable to our economic stability going forward. Uh, It was a scale that people could only have dreamed of in terms of revenue and jobs. And we thought there was some semblance of coherence, particularly when they announced it with us. Mm -hmm. But if I had a perfect field of vision going into it, I would have said, hey, these guys may act so differently than anyone we've ever dealt with that even a deal might not be a deal. Yeah. And we should not accept a competition. We should do something more. Would you more do that individual. for other tech companies going forward? Not, we, not Air- we, have, we didn't even get to Airbnb, but we that's We haven't time. even had a semblance of the problem with any other tech company. And you've heard me today right. be critical thinking about the tech community, but no other tech company has even slightly created the negative dynamics that Amazon did. They're all expanding here. 
They're going about their business. They're not asking for a lot. Mm-hmm. It's actually been quite coherent. And right. some of them, I want to show balance. Some of them have actually been good neighbors and right. interested in like helping New York City public schools and things like that. Do you think, my final question, do you think New York will become a tech center? It's been trying for a long time. Oh, stop. You, we you, already you, are. I know you stop. are with financial tech. Oh, and my I'm talking God. About, look, your San Francisco Google's, is showing. No, it's not my San Francisco. Look, no, yes. come on. Google, Apple, this they're all there. Fa- fake what, news. What, it's fake news, <laughs> all right, everyone. What is the biggest tech company in your opinion here? Besides Wall Street, Goldman Sachs has tech. Everyone has tech. Well, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase has a right. huge tech right. uh, element, for example, and obviously Google has a no, big expanding presence. I think it's going to go elsewhere. Presence. I don't even think San Francisco. San Francisco has become an unlivable situation for a lot of people because right. of the prices. Let me put it a different way. Does it have to be New York or San Francisco? Do you see? I was just in Indiana. Mm-hmm. You know, Austin is probably Austin, you know, for sure. and, and Steve Case and Mark Cuban and others are talking about the idea that it's not a question of talent; it's a question of opportunity. Do you see that happening across the country? Will it always be San Francisco, New York? No, I wouldn't be shocked if it's if it broadens out by definition because it's not like this small set thing. It's becoming ubiquitous. So of course it's going there's going to be different centers. But I would argue, uh, just to help you with your facts, that <laughs> All right. okay. Tell long me. since <laughs> yeah. we have now consolidated as a international tech hub. I think the only competition in America at this point is uh, San Francisco and the Valley. And I think that's uh, not going to change. Well, no, I'm saying in the country. country, But I don't think it's going to change for this reason, that what happened here was, one, uh, a lot of folks who realized you could not just have a monolithic tech community of white males, you Mm -hmm. know, that this is the polar opposite where our tech community is more and more diverse all the time and accurately reflects this country and this world. And I think that's going to always be a strength that we have compared to a lot of places. And two, that everything else is here. So God bless the other cities, and I, I really love and respect them. But what I'll say here is, okay, talk about other fields, media, advertising, fashion, go down the list, finance. It's all here. A lot of it's based here or very, very concentrated here. Tech companies need to have access to all of that. There is no other place in the country that provides that sort of one-stop shopping. So I think we are and will be for the long, long term, you know, the the second great tech hub in this country. Okay. Very last question. Who will be the next mayor of New York? So you wait, you agreed with me, right? Right. Yes. Yeah, you sure, disagree with me. <laughs> I disagree. I, I just want that. It's no, still, I, since I, that I was, think it's pretty you, good. I think you just You got, don't have a ma- major core. There's, you're there's, woke there's, now. No, you're woke no, about I'm New not York. woke. I'm never gonna become woke. No, but who will be the next mayor of New York? Oh, not a clue. I I think this is, I think it'll be a Democrat. I mean, Mm -hmm. I I don't say that facetiously because no, wait, we had 20 years of Republicans before me. Mm -hmm. I am literally the first Democrat reelected since the 1980s. Okay. So the assumption like, oh, New York can only be blue. No, 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 no. It's Mm -hmm. more complex. But in this day and age, I'm convinced it'll be a Democrat, but there's not even a sense yet of any dominant strain. It's way too far out. And so if you don't get the numbers you need, if all of a sudden something on social media doesn't pop and in 72 this hours interview, you're deleting. I, I yes. assume it was going to be it's this, Kara. I'm gonna, confused. It's not going to happen. I thought it was this interview. Mayor de it ain't going to happen. What? Why, what, why are you, you putting down point? your own show? Your show has that ability you know, I can get under Mark Zuckerberg's skin, but I cannot millions. change it. Okay, you would definitely support whoever the Democratic nominee is, right? Assuming Absolutely. it's not you. Do you have a favorite? No, I'm not going to talk about other people while I'm a candidate. Why do you people do that? Because, you know, if you see an opportunity, you continue to follow through the opportunity. Again, I'm a guy who if I— So you're in it to win it. If I had been in this point in the election in 2013— I know you'd be No, literally, if you said you should just get out, Bill, you're you're fifth in the polls, why don't you get out? If I had listened to you, I wouldn't be mayor of New York City. So I'm not going to listen to you now. You don't have to. You do what I say. I say it lovingly. I'm joking around. You live your jam, Mayor de Blasio. You do whatever you want. You you are woke, 
and I'm living my jam. Stop calling me woke. But I, it's a compliment. Yeah. But you the, have security here, but something might the, happen. Yeah, but no, I think the I actually think this is a better field than we've seen many, many times. It's extraordinarily diverse. There's tons of talent. As a progressive, there are tremendous progressive voices. I mean, I I often had years where I looked at the field and said, I don't know who I can relate to here mm -hmm. in terms of my values. This is not the problem this year, which is great. So I'm going to give it everything I got. And if it's not what ends up happening for me, we'll cross that bridge. And you think it. one of them can beat Trump? Absolutely. I think many of them can beat Trump. I think I, I can beat Trump. I think, no, I actually don't mean it um, facetiously. I think a strong, I really believe this, a progressive message, a clear message, a message that is not elitist, not coastal, but about everyday working people. And we are 90% of the way there. I'm not making that up. Right now, this country is ready to elect a Democrat, period. It's don't screw it up. Don't give them a reason to wonder if we're on their side or not. 2016, the story of 2016 is a lot of working Americans, including a lot of people who vote Democrat, did not know that Democrats were on their side. So I would say for me or any candidate, if it's working people first, as I say, or whatever version of it, and it's crystal clear, we are actually going to stand up to corporations and tax the wealthy more and help people get better jobs, better benefits, better wages, you're going to win, period. All right. I'm going to hold you to that. Amen. Thank you, Mayor de Blasio, for Thank coming you. on the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Eric Anderson, is at Eric America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Mayor de Blasio, where can people find you online? Oh, my God. There's so many there's places. There's so many places. That's <laughs> no. your campaign one. Here, let me give you a gimme. At Bill de Blasio. 2020? <laughs> Is it 2020? The campaign, the BillDeBlasio.com. Right. At Bill de Blasio. At Bill de Blasio. All right. If you like this episode, we really appreciate it. If you share it with a friend, and make sure to check out our other podcasts, Recode Media, Pivot, and Land of the Giants, which is about Amazon. Mayor de Blasio, you should listen to it. It's all about I'll, their I'll founding. I'll get right on that. Find I'm out what happened. Fascinated. I you wish would, I had you, listened to had it before. Had you listened to it, you would know. None of this would have happened. Yeah. Just, <laughs> they're all sharks, every one of them. Uh, just search for them in your podcasting app of choice. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Thank you for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then. <laughs>